company and other factors. The following program is sponsored Ruth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy points us to the quest for the best. We all want to know that life counts for something. When the bill of death is due, will we be left bankrupt and bereft, or will we have something? That's a theme the Bible picks up. It's a theme the Lord Jesus picks up. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world, and then in death lose his soul, his self? Ancient philosophers, pop singers, and the common man have all asked the question, what's life all about? So today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy takes us to the answer found in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're learning from the wisdom of Solomon who concluded that without God, everything is meaningless. In Ecclesiastes, King Solomon takes up the role of the preacher. He's teaching us to adopt an eternal perspective in order to enjoy this life and the next. Here's Philip delivering today's message titled, The Road to Nowhere. We're in a series of studies entitled The Quest for the Best. We're just going to come for a final look at these opening verses. We've looked at these verses under three headings. The preacher, verse 1, his text, verse 2, his sermon, verse 3. Solomon's the preacher, and his text is that life apart from God is a passing, fleeting thing, something that in the end will be insubstantial apart from the weightiness of God's purpose and person. But now he begins his sermon in verse 3. And the sermon is really a question which will lead him to many more thoughts to follow. The sermon begins with a rhetorical question. Is there a purpose and a profit to all that we do? Solomon is introducing his sermon And throughout this book, he will set out to answer that question. I think we all want to know, does this life count? And are we living for those things that count in this life? And so Solomon begins to address that, and he hooks our attention with a rhetorical question. What is the profit that a man takes from all his labor under the sun? Now, There are three things here in verse 3 that's worth pondering. I want you to see the person he has in mind. I want you to see the perspective and the prophet he has in mind. Let's just look at the person he has in mind. Solomon brings us to consider the man who's laboring, the man who's who's, uh, going about his business in the workaday world. It's the picture of a um, laboring man. In fact, this word is found 35 times in the book, and it just places you where you work and where you walk. It denotes physical labor. But interestingly, it's used to speak of of anguish, of pain, emotional pain, psychological anguish. Psalm 25 verse 18 translates it that way. And I think if you merge those, I, I think Solomon includes the idea here of drudgery as you go about your daily business. Not only do you labor physically, but you're troubled in mind and heart. What's the purpose to this? 
Where, where's this all going? What does this all add up to? The man who goes about all his labors, he may be in a suit or he may be in overalls, but that's the person he has in mind. And that person wants to know that there's a value to what they're doing and there's a purpose to their existence. What profit has a man from all his labor? He's looking at this man. And, and what this man does raises a question. Is there any profit to it? Any purpose to it? Will it mean anything when the beans are counted? The perspective that Solomon adopts is the posture of the secular man who lives life horizontally. Solomon begins his investigation from a kind of humanistic, hopeless look at life. It's a view of life without windows. The divine will not be mentioned. The transcendent will not be talked about. Fundamentally, this is a look at life devoid of God. That you see the person and you see the perspective. Let me just pause here for a moment and actually engage the author himself as an example of what we're talking about. Let's just look for a moment at the rise and demise of Solomon. His story is a story of epic proportions. He was blessed by being raised at the side of a godly father. David was his father, a man after God's own heart. And if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 3, which I encourage you to do, we read that Solomon loved the Lord and walked in the statutes of his father David. We also read that early on in his reign, God appears to him at a place called Gibeon and basically hands Solomon a blank check and says, Solomon, ask anything of me. Solomon thinks and says, Lord, I tell you what I need. I tell you what I want. I'm inadequate. I need wisdom. I need discernment to lead your people. And you read about that in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 9. Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And Solomon asked God for wisdom. And God promises to give him wisdom. And God is chuffed at the thought that Solomon didn't write on that check something selfish, something that was self-centered. He was thinking about God's glory and God's people. And God says basically to Solomon, I'm going to give you what you asked, and I'm going to give you what you didn't ask. You didn't ask for riches. You didn't ask for honor. You didn't ask for power, prestige. But I'm going to give you all those things. And God gave Solomon that in abundance. He was a wise king. He was a wealthy king. And kings and queens came from afar and marveled at Solomon's wisdom and, and the prosperity and the peace that marked his kingdom. Listen to these words by the queen of Sheba. Verse 8 of chapter 10. Happy are your men, and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Solomon, in the early years of his reign, lives under the smile of God. Okay? His toiling and his laboring under the sun is linked to a relationship with the God who resides above the sun, who gives life and meaning and purpose and significance to all that takes place under his watch. But as a change comes, there's a sad demise after the rise, there follows a demise. Go to chapter 11 of First Kings and verse 1. But Solomon loved many foreign women. He loved the Lord, and he followed in the statutes of his father David. But that love for the Lord began to be diluted. It began to wane. 
through the ungodly influence of foreign wives. But Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. Begins to lose his hold on God. And he clings to these, this forbidden love from foreign women. And we read in verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. What do we read in verse 9 of 1 Kings 11? So the Lord became angry with Solomon. At first, he lives under the smile of God. But in the end, when he's an older man, he lives under the frown of God, and God promises to tear away the kingdom. And God will do it in a dramatic act when someone rips a garment as a symbol of the fact that God is going to rip from Solomon the keys to the kingdom. He began by following the Lord with a whole heart. He loved the Lord, but then he began to love the things of this world. What does the New Testament tell us? That we cannot love the world and love our Father at the same time. His many foreign wives, whom he had married for political expediency, began to turn his heart from the Lord. And thus the idolatry that David had been so keen to suppress is now given a foothold in the palace itself through the disobedience of Solomon. It all begins back in chapter 3. It has an inauspicious beginning because while the Bible talks about Solomon's love for the Lord... It also tells us that he made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his house and the house of the Lord. And that theme is picked up, isn't it, in verse 1 of chapter 11. But King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. It all began with one wife, but the one wife became two wives, three wives, four wives, until he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And the lights go out, and they draw him down into life under the sun, under heaven, apart from God. And Solomon in this book will tell us about the sad results and costly consequences of that disobedience, where he stopped fearing the Lord, where he stopped keeping God's commandments, and no good came of it. There's a great allegory that comes out of Denmark the Danish like to tell the story of a little spider that used to dwell on the high rafters of a barn. And one day it let itself down on that silver rope, that silver strand, down to a lower beam on the barn where there were insects and bugs galore. And it feasted on those insects and it feasted on those bugs and it weaved one of its beautiful webs. And there it lived happily, satisfied, enjoying life. So much so that it forgot about life above in that old barn. So much so that one day it looked up and saw that silver strand that stretched from the web up into the darkness. And it asked itself, what, what's the purpose of that strand? What's the use of that strand? And it decided to cut that silver rope, to sever that silver strand. And as soon as the spider cut the silver strand, the web folded and the spider went hurtling to the floor of the barn. 
It had forgotten that it was connected to that which was above. And Solomon illustrates that the life that cuts the vital cord with God through forbidden delights and idolatry will come tumbling down. We read here that God's hand would be lifted off Solomon. Solomon would find out, as he will tell us in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is no happiness outside of God. To turn your back on God is to face a future without a future. And that's where some of us are. Those that are present, those that are listening, many of us are about to sever the relationship we have with God. We're about to walk away into knowing disobedience, the allure of it, the attraction of it. You and I have got to count the cost of that because there is no life apart from the author of life. There is no future in your future if God remains only part of your past. In fact, you know what's interesting here? It's a point worth making, and I know that time is going I want you to notice the way sin snowballs. It all began with one wife, didn't it? Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, and he married the daughter of Pharaoh, one wife. But over time, she began to dilute his faith in God. She began to nudge him towards the world without windows. And one wife became two wives and three wives and four wives until we get to 1 Kings 11. And he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and they turned his heart from the Lord. The point of departure didn't look like much, did it? But you and I sometimes forget how far sin can take us. We sometimes underestimate, in fact, most of the time we underestimate the unintended consequences of sin. I'm here to tell you, Solomon here is to illustrate it, that you don't know where the effects of your disobedience will stop. Your disobedience will grow. Your sin will snowball. Your transgressions will metastasize. Isn't that what James says? Hey, you get a desire, and then that desire is inflamed, and you go out to fulfill that desire illegitimately, and sin is conceived. And when sin is finished it brings forth death. You always need to keep in mind where sin finishes and where your disobedience takes you. It is right. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. Ask Solomon. He married the daughter of Egypt. Such an unauspicious start. Just one wife, one disobedience. It led to a thousand transgressions, which were multiplied into 10,000 transgressions. When I pastored Emmanuel Baptist Church in Ohio, I was wakened at three in the morning by a call from the police to inform us that our high school was on fire. By the morning when the sun had risen, the dying embers of the fire had been put out, we learned that there were two young men in our school that had smashed the windows and thrown rocks into different rooms. They had egged different rooms of the school because they wanted a day off. Just a day off. So they thought that they'd disrupt classes and mess up the classrooms and get their day off. 
But they didn't realize the unintended consequences of what they did because one of the stones that came through one of the windows went into the science room's room that locked away different uh, chemicals and stuff that was used for the experiments of the science room. And a bottle of mercury had been knocked over. A fire was started. The fumes from that fire was mixed with mercury that was sucked up into the air conditioning vents and spread through the whole high school by the morning because we kind of run just the fan during the night to keep the air circulating. By lunchtime the next day, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, came in and told us that they had found unhealthy readings in the very pores of the walls of the school. And so they shut the high school down completely. And they mandated a complete rebuild. Two million dollars worth of rebuild. Now I'm in no way trying to put these guys in, in a better light. But they didn't send out to ruin the school. They set out to disrupt the classes and the classrooms so they could get their day off. But they didn't calculate the unforeseen and unforecast consequences of their sin. Sin snowballs. It will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost you more than you want to pay. The last thought is the perspective and the profit he has in mind. The person, the perspective, the profit. Verse 3, what profit has a man for all his labor in which he toils under the sun? This is a word that's used nine times in this book. Nowhere else in the Old Testament. It's a significant word. It's an important word. It's repeated by Solomon again and again and again. And it's a word that comes from the business world. And it literally means that which is left over. When the bills are paid, when the wages are doled out, what is the profit margin? What is the compensation you get for all the energy expended, for all the effort put forth? This is our word. And in the context of our book, Solomon is troubled by the seeming small gain for man's labors under the sun. Death robs him of much of what he has labored for. As one writer puts it, materially speaking, life is short and then you die. You will lose everything you own to the next generation. Your children will rent out your house, purge you of your possessions, suspend your inheritance. Ultimately, you will be a distant memory at a Thanksgiving meal. That's pretty cynical, isn't it? Pretty satirical. But there's some reality to that, isn't there? You spend your life working, laboring, pursuing things. And when death comes, when life ends, what is there that's left over? What can you take that will justify all that you've labored and done and given yourself to? Solomon's going to look at that question. From a perspective of under the sun, not much. There's not much left when they shovel the dirt on top of your pine coffin. That which you held dear, you hold no longer. Someone else gets it all. You knock yourself dead to make something of your life only to lose it all at death. That's a theme the Bible picks up. It's a theme the Lord Jesus picks up. Mark 8, 36. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world? And then in death, lose his soul, his self, profit. We all want to know that life counts for something and that the life we're living will ultimately count for something. When the bill of death is due, 
we, along with everyone else, wants to know, will we be left bankrupt and bereft, or will we have something? Hmm. We want to know about those things that death cannot steal, and those things that the grave cannot keep, don't we? Fear God, the eternal God, and keep His commandments. Lay up treasure in heaven where moths and rust don't break in and don't steal. Jim Elliot, the missionary, said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. Jesus said, if you keep your life, you keep your life in the sense you live it for yourself, you live it under the sun, apart from God, without a relationship to Jesus Christ, you keep your life, you'll lose it. You'll profit nothing. But if you'll surrender your life, if you'll give it away to Jesus Christ, then you'll find it. You'll find it in this life, and you'll find it in the life to come. Let's pray. Lord, help us to take stock of our lives. Help us to pull to the side of the road, put our lives in park, and ask ourselves, are we living for those things that death cannot steal and the grave cannot keep? Are we wise enough to give up those things which we cannot keep for those things which we cannot lose? Lord, help us to realize that life begins in surrender to Jesus Christ. Help us to be able to say with Paul, we count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. In fact, we count all things but loss that we might gain Him because in gaining Him, we will no longer lose the world and all that we do in it or our souls for the life to come. These things we ask and pray in His name. Amen. Amen. In today's message, Philip DeCourcy cautions us against pinning our hopes on this world instead of Christ. You're listening to Know the Truth in a comprehensive study in the book of Ecclesiastes. In this current series, we're not just skimming the surface. Philip's diving deep into the wisdom of Solomon. Don't miss a message from this timeless series when you visit us online at ktt.org. There you can freely access the complete Know the Truth broadcast archives or order all the messages in the Quest for the Best Study on CD when you call 888-644-8811. At Know the Truth, we're always looking to provide you with resources to strengthen your walk of faith. And we didn't have to look far this month since Philip just released his newest book titled, Help, I'm Anxious. This is a thoroughly practical and biblical guide for defeating our fears by claiming our peace in Christ. We're offering Philip's book to everyone who gives a generous gift of $25 or more, but it's only available through the end of the month. So give online today at ktt.org or call in your donation to 888-644-8811. And of course, you can also send your gift to us by mail when you write to us at Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. It's your generosity that makes this ministry possible. So give today, and don't forget to ask for Philip's new book, Help, I'm Anxious. We'll send it to you when your gift is $25 or more. And if you're new to Know the Truth, Philip would like to send you one of his most popular and practical messages. It's called Handling the Pressure, 
and it's yours for the asking when you tell us where you listen. Call 888-644-8811. Learn how to have less stress by trusting God more. That's all for today. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd, inviting you back tomorrow for another message in our Quest for the Best series. There's more to learn from Solomon Thursday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. I was feeling wasn't my pain. It wasn't like, man, she's going to be mad and have to go through this again. This is Focus on the Family Minute, and Nick Stumble remembers the moment he realized his addiction was painful for his wife. I think it was for the first time I could see in advance the pain it was going to cause her. Um, And it was heartbreaking to realize I would do this to someone I care about so much, and I I could feel the way it was going to make her feel because we'd been through this enough times that I... I could hear the words she was going to say, and and I was feeling her pain. And I think that's what really opened my eyes to say, this this is uh, a major issue that I have to address. I can't just keep excusing it to say, oh, it's getting better, I'm working on it. Like, if I'm causing someone I love this much pain, I've got to be willing to do whatever it takes to stop it. Well, it wasn't easy, but Nick did eventually stop. And you can hear more from him today at FamilyMinute.org. Are you wondering why you're